Find all your favorite movies and shows faster with Xfinity. Just speak into the excellent voice remote to search across live TV, on demand, even Netflix and Prime Video. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. You're listening to a Castaway Media Podcast. Find more great shows at castaway.media or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash castawaypodcasts. Welcome along to Fair Game. We're going off-road in this edition of the podcast with a look at the high-octane world of adventure sports. I'm Emily Glenn. And I'm Lane Buckley. And on this episode, we are going to be meeting two Irish sportswomen who have made a name for themselves off the beaten track. Later on, we're going to be chatting to Avril Copeland, who has pushed herself beyond physical and mental limits on the most daring tracks and trails worldwide, all in the name of expedition racing. But first, we're joined by a woman who has defied all odds and perceptions around being visually impaired to rise to the ranks of running. From mini marathon to half marathon to full marathon and then on to ultra marathons, she's done it all. Here to tell us about her adventures is Sinead Kane. Sinead, you're very welcome along to Fair Game. Thanks very much for having me, Emily and Elaine. Thanks. Sinead, let's start with an introduction to you. Tell us a bit about your background. Um, Well, my name is Sinead and I do ultra running and um, I suppose what not a lot of people might know about me is that I'm visually impaired. I'm registered as blind. I was born with four eye conditions, aniridia, coloboma, nystagmus and glaucoma. So basically what that means is I can just see about five metres ahead of me and stuff that I can't do would say I can't drive. I'll never be able to drive. I have to use a magnifying glass to read different things. Um, In school, I was always had to sit near the blackboard and sometimes even sitting in the front row in school, I still couldn't see the blackboard. So, um, but yeah, that's that's about my visual impairment. The the coloboma part of my eye means that I'm missing the iris of my eye. So you're taking light through your pupil, the centre of the eye, whereas because I don't have the iris to define the pupil, then I'm taking light through the whole eye. So that can be quite difficult. So some days I might be housebound if... If outside it's a very white, very white, glary sky, that can mean that the eyes get sore and then I can't go outside the door. Wow. And Sinead, how did you <coughs> get involved with, with your sport? What what was it that attracted you to get into running? Um, well, this month I'm 34 years of age and I was only asked uh, when I was 30 to do a 10k for the... A vision sports so the National Education Centre for Blind and Visually Impaired Children so I was asked to do 10k for them and the minute I found out that it was for blind children I just automatically said yes now I didn't even know what a 5k was never mind a 10k so and because I was never encouraged to do sport in primary school or secondary school I was always left sitting on the PE bench always at the side um so as I say, I didn't know what a 10K was. I wanted to do it for the children. So I just said yes automatically. They said fantastic. And this was four years ago. And then it was only about two days after saying yes, I kind of said to myself, OK, right, what does actually 10K mean? I better Google this. And I also better figure out how I'm actually going to do it because I kind of said, OK, well, I can't 
walk without a cane so how am I going to actually be able to run so I had to figure out about getting a guide and then started training from April until June that was in 2012 and did the 10k and I set the target of raising 2,000 euros for the charity and I raised that and I also set myself the time the guide runner said oh do you want to pick a time and then I said oh yeah sure we'll pick an hour and then I did it in 55 minutes so I was happy enough with that time. So then after that, then I joined a running club and I suppose my confidence started to build when I kind of saw that it was relieving stress and everything. And then after that, then I decided to train for a half marathon, then decided to train for the Dublin marathon. And with it, after training for the Dublin marathon, I thought that it, when I completed the half marathon in June twenty. 14 yeah that I would a month later I decided to train for the Dublin Martin and I thought I'd get a guide automatically because of being visually impaired and that I was doing it for Childline so because my first charity four years ago was Vision Sports then because I've done a lot of voluntary work all throughout my life so I decided to do for Childline and I thought I'd get a guide automatically and I had problems getting a guide down in Cork I went on the radio I went on the newspaper I asked friends I asked running clubs could not get a guide so I put a tweet out on Twitter saying no guide then I won't be able to do this marathon in October and then a guy came forward but he was based in Dublin and I was based in Cork so I wanted to badly do this marathon in in October that I travelled three hours up on the train to do a two hour run to then travel three hours back down on the train again so I was travelling for six hours to do a two hour run because I'm not the same as everybody else where you can just tron your runners and off out the door running um, and so my biggest now I, I I didn't really know about running and everything like that I was very much focused into the charity element but I got injured because I upped the running too quickly because I went from trying to run 13 miles of a half marathon to running 18 miles within was it three weeks and I was trying to cram it all because I was coming up and down from Cork to Dublin and I wanted to make the value of the train journey and of course by doing it that way that's not the proper way because normally most people do a six month marathon training thing I was trying to do a marathon training in three weeks I got injured and so I couldn't do running for three weeks in September and then a a person put me in contact with John O'Regan. He's an ultra runner just to get advice and basically he met up with me and he was kind of actually trying to turn me off of doing the Dublin Marathon. But my biggest uh, worry was if they if it rains on the day of the not about my knee now being actually severely injured but I was saying to him if it rains on the day of the marathon will they cancel the marathon? And then he said, are you being serious? And then I realised I was being serious, but he thought I was only joking. And then I didn't want to look stupid. So then I had to kind of backtrack and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm only joking. But um, I said, seriously, like, will they actually cancel it if it's like really hailstones? And um, he said, no, they won't cancel it. They spend nearly a year. So that's how little I knew about running, as in I thought they'd cancel the marathon if it rained. So a key factor in your running career has been your guides. Can you talk to us about the dynamic of working with a guide and and running with a guide? How does that work, even logistically? Yeah. So after I did the Dublin Martin, John, John O'Regan asked me, did I want to do a 50K? And um, 
Yeah, I said oh, yes. Just casually, and, come on, we do fifty k. <laughs> so um, he was he was boosting my confidence, and I suppose that's a thing with guides; they try and boost your confidence. But he brought me to the Donna D Kildare to do this fifty k, and we went around, and I just said. I can't do this because there was um, tree roots coming up of the ground. So. There was all this uneven terrain. And I suppose that's how you run with the guide. It has to be all about communication, communication, communication. They have to tell you go left, go right. Um, and you can build up a lot of frustration because when you're running, if if you're getting tired, you can look around, look at other runners suffering. You can draw energy from that. You can look at the scenery. You can draw energy from that because I can't see, I can't draw that energy. So then I release frustration, maybe through the guide. If the guide doesn't say the direction quick enough, then I'd get very maybe angry and frustrated. And then the guide has to have patience to realise, well, this is frustration that's coming through. So just just. To clarify that, the idea of 50 that you did is a 50k. That is an off-road 50k? Um, well, it's around, it, it's, it was a kind of around a forest type park type of thing. Yeah, so, so it's not flat oh, land like oh, the no, Dublin no, Marathon. Definitely, it's, it's definitely not. Over, no. over hills and on track. And yeah, and trail very running. on trail running, very uneven terrain. And I suppose that's where the difficulty with vision impairment comes in, that you don't know where your foot is going to land. And, um, and the guides can forget themselves at times. Sometimes they're running along and they like John threw a water bottle right across in front of me and I wasn't long telling him about well, that's <laughs> quite dangerous and um, so yeah you have to have trust amongst the guide and have a good communication strategy now some people they can have a strategy where you use poles and canes and so that would work that if if you're not having a great time with the guide that uh they'd be a quite a distance behind but the way I like to run with my guides is side by side and communication and having a tether. Okay. And Sinead, so as as you said, you started with a ten K onto half marathon, then marathon, then ultra marathon, then trail then trail running. What what drives you to to keep kind of upping your game in in your choice in your choice of races? Um, well, you see, I went from a person of never being involved in sport to actually getting into sport, doing it for charity and then realising this is a confidence booster and having people around me believing in me. Because sometimes that's what I've learned from life is that sometimes you need others to believe in you for you to believe in yourself. And what gets me to keep setting the bar higher is that if it doesn't challenge you, it won't change you. And I suppose like in life a lot of people are living their fears they're not living their dreams because they're letting fear hold them back and I suppose I'm trying to push the boundaries of my physical and physical mind or physical body and mental mind because then that can transfer into skills of my daily life of doing my PhD um I suppose if you see the hard work that you put into training that it relates to your job as well. If you put hard work in, you get the um, outcome because that's what I like to do. I like to focus on not the obstacle and what I can't do, but on the outcomes that I can achieve and to show other people that a lot of people used to be taking pity on me and they used to say, "See, say, oh, do you see that blind girl there running? And now they say, oh, that's the girl 
who does the 12 hour racing or that's the girl who who ran the volcano marathon in Chile or that's a girl who came 23rd female out of 1,413 females in the Wings for Life Brazil run. So they don't now refer to me as that's the pity blind girl mm-hmm. doing. So I've got, went from completing to competing. Yeah, it's not even changing perceptions. It's absolutely smashing them and then running all over them. Yeah. I think so. It's I've kind of, I've went from a situation in my life where a lot of people underestimated my disability to now overestimating me in the sense that. I'm constantly getting asked now what's next what's next rather than oh sure you can't do that it's quite a shift listen you've already spoken to us really briefly about the logistics of your of training for your first marathon and how you overtrained and, and became injured so talk to us a little bit about the biggest hurdles that you've encountered as a visually impaired runner tell us a little bit about you know how that impacts your training schedule um, and and how you log miles for an ultra yeah, so uh, I suppose one thing would be that um, how I'm different to other runners is if I want to get up on a Monday and go off out running, I just can't do that. It has to be planned all around the guide. Um, and that's, I suppose, that can impact on my training because if I want to get a lot of miles done in a week, I'm dependent on the guide. Um, also, trying to find a running watch for a visually impaired person was an absolute nightmare. I'm very grateful to my sponsors, Great Outdoors. They were great in trying to find a running shop or a running watch suitable for my needs because it was very, very difficult to try and find some sort of print that I would be able to see. So I suppose it just is frustrating, like even small things that... Um, when you go to a supermarket and as an athlete you have to eat particular types of food and you have to cut down particular types of fats and all of this and going into the supermarket and then picking up the product and any normal person with full sight can look at the product and see the ingredients straight away whereas if I don't have my magnifying glass with me I can't look at the uh, ingredients so it's really minute things like that looking at ingredients in shops to not being able to go out when you want and that's frustrating um for example when i came back from the volcano marathon in chile in december i got quite sick and then the mindset wasn't there to be going out running and I suppose afterwards then when I did want to go out running then the guide wasn't available and and then you have to kind of plan your your races and runs around the guide and even getting to the say a safe venue so like if I'm meeting the guide at a particular area then I have to coordinate my bus transport because I can't drive my bus transport to that area to meet the guide so um, like so for example if I'm going for an hour run that hour run in trying to meet the guide could end up being three hour, three hours out of my day whereas a normal runner they might only do that hour so they, they step outside their door and their clock starts straight away the minute they step outside the door because they run from their house to the point where they want to run to to run back again and that's their hour in shower changed and then back to their normal day whereas I don't have that luxury mm, and you mentioned there um, Sinead just kind of about nutrition and kind of eating the right foods I suppose that in turn links back to to recovery 
Um, can you describe? Because let's be honest, it's a it's a pain I will never know. How do you feel in the days after completing a race of say the volcano run or, or the the Wings for Life run in Brazil? Um, well, I, I suppose I'll actually even talk about the twelve hour track race in terms of the eating, and then I'll talk about the volcano. In the twelve hour track race, um, I wasn't able to eat anything during the race, and the guide was saying you have to eat you have to eat you're not going to get through this race unless you eat and so I bit into a rice cake and before the 12 hour track race I loved chocolate rice cakes and then (laughs) uh, when I bit into it then it tasted absolutely disgusting and because of just your your mouth yeah it just it just tasted disgusting and um, same then throughout the race I tried to eat a bit of a queen bun that wasn't working so I take very little in during races actually um, to come to think of it during that 12 hour track race all I did eat was the bit of the rice cake and the bite of the bun uh, the queen bun and then in the volcano marathon I didn't eat anything on the run I took a gel um, and in the wings for life run I didn't take anything to eat either mm-hmm. so I that's an area that I have to really work on my nutrition because I'm a vegetarian I don't eat fish or I don't eat meat mm-hmm. and it's very important when you are doing runs to get the protein into you so um, I have goals in mind about the future but I've been told that those goals won't be sustainable unless I get my nutrition sorted out mm-hmm that's insane and what about the actual recovery so the actual kind of what do you do in the day kind of after a 12 hour run or after an ultra like what what is your recovery even better what's your favorite post-race meal um well once my stomach settles down in the volcano marathon it was so hot out there it was like 35 degrees after just the ice cream because it was just um to me it didn't taste heavy it was it was nice and light um and that was the same after the brazil run but normally i can't eat for about three or four hours after a run even though you're meant to be eating within 20 minutes um so if i had to say anything it would be the ice cream but on the run myself and john in the volcano marathon we came to the 13 mile mark and i said to john our yeah, it was around 13 miles. I said to John, I said, get me a glass of water. Now, he he was struggling a bit in terms of the heat, trying to guide me, the uneven surfaces. And he was given a lot more commands than normal. Like, we need to go left, we need to go right, we need to do this, we need to do that. And so that was energy draining for him. So um, <clears throat> he said to me, I said to him, oh, get me a glass of water. Now, when we ran past the station, he just picked up any cup. He didn't actually look at it properly. And he picked up an isotonic type of a drink. Now, because my stomach is quite funny on runs, I didn't want an isotonic drink. I wanted a glass of water. So, of course, when I tasted it, I said, this isn't water. And then he said, oh, yeah, no, don't worry about it. It's a blue isotonic drink. So then over that, then we started fighting over that because I was saying to him, oh, you're my guide here now and you took advantage of my sight and all of this type of thing. But the funny thing about it was while we were fighting, we didn't stand and have the argument. We continued running. So because we knew, well, I knew we're out in the middle of a desert and 
you have to get to the finish line otherwise you're just stuck there but I suppose that's the thing about obstacles in life you only can overcome them if you keep moving forward if you stand still you're not going to get anywhere so and that was my mindset with that that right this is an argument this is where we need the good communication I need to tell him why I'm upset about this I need to listen back to him then to listen why he didn't get the water for me but do this as we're continuing running and then we're not wasting time I think a lot of people in life do that they waste a lot of time by standing still and focusing on their problem and really dwelling on it Mm. and you you mentioned briefly earlier Sinead um, your your PhD research can you tell us a bit more about that kind of beyond running what you're working on at at the moment Um, so I'm looking at a teacher's legal duty of care inside and outside a school concerning bullying so whether a teacher owes a duty of care inside a school and outside a school now inside a school it's plainly evident that they do owe duty of care concerning bullying but outside of school it's a bit more um un it, it's a bit m- more bit uncertain yeah so it's a great area especially in terms of cyber bullying so that's what i'm working on i'm full p full-time phd researcher with the dcu okay that's incredible and we we uh you also mentioned earlier that now instead of pe- people constantly ask you what's your What's your next challenge going to be? So um, I think we'll go ahead and, and ask that question because I have to say, having heard about some of the races you've done so far, I'm I'm intrigued to know if you have any more com- coming down the line or anything that, that you'd like to do. Um, well, at the moment, I'm just trying to regain my fitness because after I came back from the volcano run in December, I was actually quite sick physically and mentally. I actually had said to myself that I was giving up running Um and everything because it really drained me trying to do the volcano marathon but now I'm getting my fitness back and I do have goals but I can't really fully say at the moment what they are but they are for later during the year there's going to be one in about two or three months time and then there's another one at the very end of the year now I people might think that the one in two or three months time is extreme but for me Yes, it is extreme, but it's a springboard to what I've planned later in the year. Okay. So, and the way I'll put it to you is the races that I've previously done, they, they're nothing compared to what I want to do. Well, I am suitably intrigued. That is, uh, you've really, you really uh, set, it, set it up there. So we will be sure to keep our listeners posted on, on your progress when all is revealed. And we wish you all the very best of luck with it. Thanks And Sinead, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Game. Thank you. Have you ever thought about becoming a tough mother or going to hell and back? Or maybe you've thought about tackling your first half marathon or even a triathlon. Well, our next guest is one of Ireland's most preeminent adventure racers who throughout her competitive career has taken endurance sports to a whole other level. Marathon distance just isn't quite far enough. Multi-day races make for training runs and the further expedition races can push her physical and mental limits, the better. Avril Copeland, you're very welcome to Fair Game. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So Avril, let's start with a bit of an introduction to, to you. Tell us a bit about your background in sport. Yeah, God, um, going way back. Um, so essentially I started in sport um, really back in school. I played a lot of hockey. So I was um, playing hockey in school, played, you know, 
did okay, played sort of Leinster and then, um, you know, made it onto the Irish team uh, for a while. So that was kind of my first, I suppose, intro to more the international sport. Um, and I played hockey, I suppose, and it consumed me, I suppose, for many years. Um, but then, I suppose, just when we left, um, or we didn't, sorry, make the uh, Olympics back in, I think it was Sydney Olympics, um, I actually gave up hockey at that point in time and moved to Nashville, Tennessee. So I was a big country music fan and Garth Brooks fan at the time. So I uh, moved to Nashville and really, I suppose, got involved in adventure racing when I was in Nashville. I saw a race called the Eco Challenge. Um, on television. It was a Christmas time. I was home. Uh, you know, I, I'd been in Nashville a year and then was home for the Christmas um, and saw this, you know, incredible show on television. I think it was on, you know, TV3 at the time and was totally taken by it. Like, I had no adventure or outdoor experience. I was, you know, the most I'd done was on a bike around my neighborhood. Um, so basically, from then, uh, emailed the teams that won the race that year, which was in Borneo. And thankfully, they wrote back and told me how to, you know, get started in the sport. And I suppose so. That's really, you know, the, the main sports I've had is is the hockey and and the adventure racing, and and still probably doing, you know, adventure racing, running, cycling, and things like that. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of my my background. And so you're you're one of Ireland's most renowned adventure racers. What first attracted you to like the concept of the sport? I think really just from, well, first of all, you're very kind of saying that. I didn't know about that, but um, uh, I suppose just when I saw the race itself on television, and I think there was many racers at that time, so it was back around 2000, um, the Eco Challenge. The Eco Challenge was a race which was sort of brainchild of Mark Burnett, who's famous for The Apprentice and Survivor and things like that. And the race was on television, and it was kind of just, you know, four people out in the wilderness trying to survive and, uh, you know, all the, the things that come along with that and um, so really I don't really know why it appealed to me I'd been in Cap and Lee in fourth year or something for you know an overnight camping session or whatever so that was sort of the closest you know and and, and also the, the bike around the neighborhood but um, yeah I, I, I don't know something just triggered inside me and I think because I'd given up hockey and I'd been out of team sport um, and this was kind of the ultimate in team sport you know you're really relying on each other to get each other through um, and so I think that was kind of the, the main thing that, that kind of attracted to me it was something that I felt was so hard that so many people weren't able to do that I thought God you know if I could do this this would be great so I suppose it was also the challenge to challenge myself as well and in, ter- in terms of the training for that Avril obviously you being used to the the hockey setup which is a very kind of controlled training regime can you kind of cast your mind back to, to training for that what kind of differences that you felt obviously such a polar opposite change in, in sports yeah, I think um, like and, and it's, it's like while while adventure racing is a true team sport, I suppose for much of when I was you know like especially as my last big race you know in Ecuador, you know much of the training is done on your own because I think the actual amount of training you have to do is very different to something like hockey where like as you said it's quite controlled and you all meet and you do your uh, you know your your few hours of, of physical and and skills where this was you know really you're you're taking in kayaking, climbing, trekking, mountain biking, um, you know, all of these sports combined. So you're you're picking up a lot of sports and having to train to really a, like a quite a high level in each of those sports. So it does consume a lot of your time. Um, and really with the training, it was, you know, getting out on the bike. And just because with expedition racing, you know, you could be out there for eight to ten days. 
So it really is all about time on your feet and time on the bike. So you just really get out and, you know, whether it's going for a four or five hour cycle and then getting back and going for a run or whatever that might be, it really is just trying to build up the mileage um, in your body so that you can cope with it when you come to the race. So how exactly do you train for a race like that? So give us an insight into an average day in the life of an expedition racer in training. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose, um, like, you know, it, it's long weekends of, of training. So so you could do come some brick type of sessions. So you might do a, as I said, like a long bike ride for four or five hours and um, up through the mountains and then come back and do, you know, like a run, like a, a trail run for an hour or two. So that would be probably a typical weekend day. And, um, you know, once you're coming up, I suppose, close to, to an event. Um, but, you know, it really is about building up the volume. So during the week then, you know, trying to get two hours in in the morning and maybe if you can get a second session in in the day um maybe on the trainer on the bike trainer you know so you're i suppose you're 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 trying to incorporate all the the the, the different disciplines and um, build up volume within each discipline and avril besides kind of the the physical training i think the, the bit that fascinates me a lot is kind of how you would logistically prepare for for, for training yeah. and racing like I'm, I'm someone who gets stressed packing like my hockey bag in the morning <laughs> yeah. and going into work yeah. so kind of in terms of what, what you have to have prepared as well as your own body and your own mind like can you tell us a bit about 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 kind of the, the crucial elements involved in the preparation sure yeah so I suppose that is a big a big part of adventure racing is the logistics that surrounds it um, and for many of the big races there's an essential kind of mandatory gear list that every racer has to have before they set out on the course so um, before any race you'll get a list from the race director so um, like I'm helping organise now a race in Ireland actually in August um, and it's a World Series race it's a five day non-stop 500 kilometre race so all the racers will get their gear their gear list before they ever you know come to Ireland essentially um, and it will be very specific in terms of the type of you know climbing equipment they need the type of um, you know like well obviously we supply kayaks but you know every it's down to every sort of small detail is um, is described in the gear list so as long as you have sort of the core components um, that's kind of the main thing and then I suppose after that it's really about getting your food right and planning and um, for us I think you know food is quite a difficult one especially for people that are new to um, adventure racing trying to plan out because obviously you don't want to be carrying tons of calories that you're never going to eat and um, but also you never want to be out there with no food so for us normally um, before any race once we get course so the night before most of the time with the big races you'll get the course um, details I suppose the day before the race and then your navigator is going to sit down and sort of map out the actual course of, of how you think you're going to go out the course um, and then also you'll look at timing so you could say well this trek is going to take us 24 hours so in effect then you're going to have to pack 24 hours worth of calories um, so we used to, depending on the race and depending on the types of second sections. So some some of the races, you know, they have quite sh- um, shorter sections. So they could be you could be out there for four hours or five hours. Um, but some of the other races now, you could be out there for a day or two days. So depending on on um, on those type of of races, you will then pack like whether it be a six hour baggie, you know. 
we'll put together six hour bags of food and then, you know, pick up three or four depending on the, on the section that's coming up. And um, But there is so much logistics involved, you know, and there's so many, after every race, there's always something that people look back and go, oh God, you know, I forgot my bike shoes and we're out trekking, you know, or we're out cycling for, you know, two days so people have to wear their runners. So things like that always happen in these types of races. So um, the logistics is a crucial part. And I, I think especially when people are tired, it just adds to the misery you know, where people are trying to remember, oh, I need to take my climbing gear from this bag to this bag. Um, so, yeah, no, logistics are massive. And have, have you ever, um, like, dropped or lost anything really important on the way? Um, in one race, we did. We um, forgot to pack. Well, we caught our maps for... So, essentially, you know, you're, 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 you're like, you plan ahead and go, okay. So, with these, the way these races are set up, it could be... Um, you know, the, the day before, you'll get five boxes, okay? And then you'll know, okay, day two, we're going to meet box A. So you pack everything from, um, say, from day two onwards, you'll pack into box A. So it, it's quite hard to, to explain. But anyway, but but what happened with us was one of the days we didn't pack the right maps into the box. So when we got to the box, the maps weren't there for our next section, which was a 48-hour trek. Um, with lots of, you know, and it's all navigation, so it's all through map and compass. So obviously maps are vital or else you're out of the race. Mm-hmm. So lucky with that, actually, we were really lucky in, in that we were kind of had been racing alongside another team, another sort of international team at the time. And really, and, and when you're out there with these other teams, especially, you know, you're all kind of helping each other, to be honest, because you're sort of racing against the course rather than each other. So um, thankfully, they kind of let us tag along um, with them and we kind of worked with them. And, and they actually broke a chain on their bike. So we ended up, you know, towing a guy on his bike for pretty much a day. So I suppose we both won really in that case. That, that sounds incredible. Um, <laughs> yeah. You have had some pretty incredible moments throughout your sporting career, though. So talk to us about maybe your standout moment of expedition racing so far. Um, standout moment. Um, I've had a few, I think, crazy, hairy moments. Um, in Ecuador, actually, we, in the middle of the night, it was two o'clock in the morning, and we were basically looking for a transition. Um, and we thought, you know, we were actually quite close. We thought we were about two miles away from a transition area. And we decided that we would try and take a shortcut down kind of the side of a mountain and cross a river because we thought that was the quickest way to the um, transition area. And we were all wrecked. We'd been out for, I don't know, I think it's 24 hours. Um, and so in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., we start climbing down the side of this mountain and it was pitch dark. I'll never forget it. And um, suddenly the, the field, what we were in, got, you know, we couldn't really see each other. It was a sugarcane field. And as we kind of made our way down the side of the mountain, there was a barn and like sort of it's just very random in the middle of nowhere in Ecuador, if you can imagine. And, and it was like barrels and it smelled like alcohol, but we didn't really think any, anything of it. So we, we kept making our way down. We were probably about an hour, an hour down. Um, and then next thing we heard like this, these men screaming and dogs barking and lights flashing. Like, and this is on a field on the side of a mountain in the middle of Ecuador at two o'clock in the morning. So we were terrified. And luckily we had Owen with us at the time who had, you know, prepared some Spanish and um, went on the plane on the way over. He was trying to learn some Spanish. And, you know, we were like, and he's, he's also in the army. So we were like, oh my God, like totally petrified. Like I just thought we were going to be killed. And we sent um, Owen, you know, he had to climb back up to try and meet them and try and calm them down. 
And as it turned out, they had machetes and they were like, they were like, he had his hands out in front and they were like, you know, looking inside to cut off his hands. But as it turned out, we'd, we'd, we'd come across an illegal moonshine plantation. Oh, um, so, yeah, it was, um, to tell you, I was, I've, I've never, I have never been that terrified. I think we were all like totally just speechless. You know, it was one of those things. So there's been random moments like that, you know, that you come out the other side and go, oh my God, that was amazing. But at the time, you know, your heart is definitely beating. That sounds absolutely horrifying. Absolutely. <laughs> I just can't imagine that. And like the, 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 the teammates that, that you have around you, obviously teamwork and, and who, who you choose to go, to go in these races with is, is a very important aspect of the sport if, you, yeah. if you're going to find yourself in situations like that. So how, yeah. how do you kind of get together with your teammates? Um, like how, how do you decide to work together for a race as a whole? Yeah, like I suppose, uh, you know, on that team, I raced with a guy, Pete Spagnoli, who's a guy from um, New York, actually. And he is a a racer that I've raced with for years and years and years. And he's one of these guys. He's an incredible athlete and a super kind person. You know, there's no ego involved. He really is out there for the team. And and it's finding people like Pete that are selfless. You know, there's there's been a lot of history in adventure racing where like Navy SEALs have gone out or Army got, you know, well, not not, not so bad now because he's brilliant but other kind of you know super alpha males have gone out and they've never completed races because it's all about their ego you know so they're all they won't let anyone know if they're tired or sick or whatever so in adventure racing you really have to find people that are just out there for the team you know it's kind of you're moving kind of as one the whole way through and that's the only way to get through these races so you know I've definitely had times in the past where I've raced with racers that you know I would never race with again because of you know you know because essentially everyone's great you know when you meet each other but it's only when you're out there in the middle of nowhere like lost for say 10 hours that you know people's true character really does come through so I think through through the different races and even racing alongside other teams you get to you know I've got to know a lot of other teams and racers from around the world throughout the years Um, and you know when big races come up people are say on Facebook or you know, we'll email and say, hey, look, I'm thinking about doing this race. Would you be interested? So, um, like, just last February now, I was meant to, this past February, I was meant to do a race in Patagonia, and that was with an American team. And two of the people I'd actually, I've never met face-to-face, but, you know, I've, I've known for years through the adventure racing scene. So it's really random like that. And I think in Ireland, um, there is a core group of people that actually do expedition racing. So it's quite a small pool of people. Um, and it's really finding people that you get on well with, that you train well with um, and but definitely you have to you have to really make sure that there's no egos you know because that will be um, to the detriment of the team so listen for for those of us who aren't as familiar with competitive adventure racing and expedition racing tell us a little bit about some of the major world events um, and some of the events that happen in ireland Sure, yes. Yeah. So the, I suppose in expedition racing, so expedition racing is really anything from three days onwards. So I suppose the most race that I've ever done is up to 10 days. Um, and so that's kind of normally the cutoff for, not a, there's no cutoff, but it's normally about three to 10, 10 days are kind of expedition adventure races. Um, and so those races go on around the world. There's the Adventure Racing World Series, which um, is made up of many races around the world. And there's lots of kind of racers that like essentially professional racers that go around and race in all the events and pick up points. 
um, you know, to win like the series. Um, that sort of a, a culminates in the World Series or the World Championships at the end of every year, and and it's different places every year. And um, this year, we're I'm helping actually organise the Itera World Series race, which is a race in Ireland, um, and so it's at itera.ie if people want to look it up. But that's a five day non-stop race and it's part of the World Series. So they're kind of the main, you know, I suppose expedition races. I think they're kind of, you know, the, the creme de la creme really of, of, of expedition races. You know, I think that, you know, there are other races obviously organized around the world, but you always have to have a certain, you know, you have to be careful because there's a lot of races that maybe, you know, safety is obviously a massive aspect when it comes to these type of races. So you have to make sure that the courses have been vetted and, you know, they're up to a certain standard. Um, and I think you get that under the World Series. Um, but, yes, yeah, so there's kind of the main, you know, then there's other, you know, there's kind of like the multi-sport races, um, like the Quest and Gang Lock and the Quest races. And um, there is, you know, there's lots like the Gale Force races. Um, so there's lots of sort of those, which are more kind of, I think, you know, when expedition racing started off, you know, it went straight into kind of the multi-day races. Um, but then, I suppose, with more people, you know, transferring from other sports, they wanted shorter kind of days out that they could still get the benefit and enjoy it, um, but not necessarily do the 24-hour up to 10-day races. So I think that's where the multi-sport races then started. So that's the shorter distance races. So, you know, equally as brilliant and, and a, great, a great way for people to get their feet wet into adventure racing. And speaking of, Avril, for people who might be kind of people listening who might be thinking of toying with the idea of taking the plunge with their first adventure race, what's the main piece of advice that you would give to someone at beginner level who's who's just thinking about it at the moment? I would say don't think about it anymore and just do it, to be honest, because, you know, I think so many people go, oh, God, I'd love to do adventure race, but I could never do that or I'm, I'm never fit enough, I'm never strong enough, I'm never, you know, whatever enough. So I think really in adventure racing, you just have to decide and say, okay, I'm going to do it and just put something in the calendar. And it's it's like even doing a 5K or 10K. It's not until you've actually put it in the calendar that you actually step out and, and start training first. So um, definitely the first thing is just, you know, decide and do something um, and I think after that really and, and I think people are a bit wary may, maybe of adventure racing just because it's not like a 5k or 10k that you know what you're kind of getting you know what I mean so there is an element of unknown and um, with adventure racing but really you know it's, a, it's an amazing it's a it's an amazing experience and um, and the, you, you get so much more from it than you would from the other type of event. And so that's kind of the main thing. I think, you know, really it is just about starting, you know, just getting out and doing some running. Uh, you know, there's lots of plans online that people can sort of pick up, what, you know, depending on the type of event that they're doing. A lot of the events now have online resources around training and training for, the, for their particular events. So um, I definitely think if anyone's interested, you should just, just do it, you know. And finally, Avril, what's your next challenge going to be? My next challenge, that's a really good question. I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the moment now to see kind of what's out there. Um, I'd love to do, you know, I haven't done a proper expedition race since Ecuador, since the World Championship, since the end of 2014. So um, I'm really looking for another kind of big event to do. Um, you know, I'm close to retirement now at this stage. So, uh, so still looking at the, the Patagonia race is one that I've always wanted to do, to be honest, and, and I missed it this year. So that's kind of the next one that's put it in my sights for, um, for next February. So hopefully that will, you know, I'll be able to pull that one off. Well, we'll look forward to following your progress towards that one, Avril. And thank you so much for chatting to us here on Fair Game. No worries. Thank you so much. All the best.
Big thanks to Avril Copeland and Sinead Kane for sharing their daring tales with us here on the podcast. Easily two of the most inspirational sportswomen that we've interviewed. As Avril mentioned, she's involved in planning a World Series event right here in Ireland. It's on this August. Check out itera.ie for more info on that. That's I-T-E-R-A.ie. And also follow Avril on Twitter at Avril C for updates on her own adventures. And she alluded to it during her interview and we can now confirm the details of Sinead's next adventure, for which she is currently fundraising. Seven marathons on seven continents in seven days. Check out her Twitter account at Sinead for more info on these incredible plans. If you've missed any of our episodes to date, head over to the website castaway.media slash fairgame. The full archive is there. You can also subscribe to Fair Game on whatever podcasting app you use to get new episodes direct to your device. Our Twitter account can keep you up to speed with all things going on in the world of women's sports. Find us at Fair Game Cast and follow us for updates and say hi. That's it for this episode of Fair Game. We'll talk to you again in two weeks' time. This was a Castaway Media production. Find more great podcasts on our network. Visit castaway.media. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fine hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. And sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection this spring at Total Wine & More. Cheers!